0: Inspired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 108 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, Bible scholars Robert M. Price and Richard Carrier will be joining us to discuss the recent Darren Aronofsky film, Noah. But first up, we've got an interview with best-selling humor novelist Christopher Moore. His latest book is called The Serpent of Venice. And now, here's our interview with Christopher Moore. All right, so we're here with Christopher Moore. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Okay, so your new book is called The Serpent of Venice, and it features the return of your character Pocket, who first appeared in your 2009 novel Fool. So tell us about Pocket.
2: Um, well, Pocket base is based on The Fool from King Lear. Um anybody who's familiar with King Lear knows that the fool sort of just disappears more or less in the middle of the play. And, um, but otherwise he's, he's pretty prominent and, um, and of all of Shakespeare's fools. Anyway, he sort of, uh, is the one who speaks the most, uh, truth to power. You know, he's the, in, in the most actual danger for being a fool. Um, which was what I was going for. And I had originally just wanted to do a book about, um, any fool, a generic fool, because of that very reason—that that truth to power—and it—and my editor, I I met with her in New York uh, and and said, look, I want to do a book about a fool, but I don't know whether to do just any fool or Lear's fool. And she said, oh, do Lear's fool, which you know sent me into three years of learning Shakespeare's canon, and um, and Pocket is sort of he's tiny, he was raised in a nunnery, and he's extraordinarily foul mouthed. <laughs> And, um, and and so not only is he politically not very powerful, but he he uh, refers to himself physically as a bit of a soggy kitten. So he he's, um, there's that contrast of, of him being very, very articulate and sort of the master of, of any conversation because he's so witty, but pretty much being the least powerful character on stage at any time.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, so when you say that he's foul-mouthed, could you give us an idea of what are the sorts of things that he might be prone to say?
2: God, I love the internet. If this was radio, you'd be <laughs> standing on the delay button. Um well, I mean he uh, uh when I wrote this I wanted to use a lot of British slang and the Brits are much more free with with words like twat and uh and the c word and uh and you know bloody buggering bollocks and uh a word that I coined fuck stockings and that sort of thing. So at any given time he's he will go off on sort of a an obscene rant, um, at any given character. Um, uh, he calls, uh, King Lear in the first book, he, he calls him, uh, dog fuckingly old. And, uh, in this book, uh, there, there's, it's just, that's sort of his mentality and, and it really would have been how fools in the middle ages would have behaved. You know, they were, they were not, uh, they may have been very smart, and very quick, but they were not high-minded, and, and the sense of humor was not high-minded. So uh, that's about the best I can do off the top of my head. But there's profanity uh, all over the place in this book. Mm.
1: Okay, and so you mentioned that Fool is sort of your take on King Lear. And now this mm-hmm. book is, it's sort of a mashup of Shakespeare's plays, Othello and The Merchant of Venice, and the Edgar Allan Poe short story, The Cask of Amontillado. Just how did you get the idea to combine those particular stories?
2: Well, essentially, I started um, with the premise that I was in Venice. I had gone to the Mantua Literary Festival to to do an appearance and um, stopped over in Venice and just wandering through the city, I thought, this is the perfect setting for a monster story. And then I always you know, make a note of everything um, because you never know when something's going to be a, an idea that can develop and... So when it came time to come up with the idea for a new book, I thought, well, maybe I could set a monster story in Venice. And and you always try to, or I always try to see what stories have been told that are set in Venice before, um, because you don't want to sort of step on someone's toes. And, you know, immediately I, I thought of a, a horror story set in Venice is the Cask of Amontillado, um, wherein a, a fool is walled up in a dungeon. And I thought, well, I have a fool. <laughs> and then I thought, well, what Shakespeare... Uh, plays are are set in venice and it's the merchant of venice and othello then there's always got to be some weird supernatural you know thing going on and therefore the serpent um and uh and so i was just trying to figure out how to make all those elements come together and, and history really worked in my advantage because uh i had set fool in the late 13th century um the end of the 12s and what was happening in venice in the late uh 13th century was really interesting and um uh, politically you know the venetians had made a lot of money by being the uh facilitator for the crusades they really you know became the power of the mediterranean um because they could ship soldiers and goods and and weapons to the uh, holy land and so in the Fourth Crusade, the beginning of the 13th century, they really became a, a maritime power. And so there were a lot of things going on that resonated sort of with our time, with, you know, wars in the Middle East being, you know, sort of perpetrated by people who were going to make money on them, as well as as uh, the element of a black general, a black Moorish general who was uh, who was the head of a of a navy and, and a military force that was about to go to war against uh, a Muslim force. And then a Jewish moneylender. So to have all of those things uh, in one story in that time period really uh, was sort of uh, the best of all worlds when you're trying to foment conflict. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about what sorts of changes you had to make to the respective stories, even to just to fit them into the same chronology, right?
2: Well, um, yeah, they, they both are sort of set, you know, they, Shakespeare doesn't give a specific time, but if you look at the events that he mentions in particularly in Othello, it's, it's happening in about mid 16th century because that's when the uh, Venetians were at war with the Turks. And that's where Othello is as the general is, is sent to, um, to Cyprus to fight the Turks, Cyprus and Rhodes, I think. And, um, and so I, setting it, uh, you know, 250 years earlier changes that quite a bit. Um, and the, um, at that point, the Venetians are at war with the Genoans and toward the end of the, the 12th century, they're almost, their Navy is only almost completely wiped out by the Genoan Navy down to like 40 ships. And for, you know, if you're the maritime power of the Mediterranean, that's really not enough ships. And so I was able to take, you know, wh- you know, one wonders, how does this moor, this outsider, um, become a, the general? And I was able to explain that in, in that he was hired as a mercenary, and he sort of distinguished himself in defending the city of Venice. Because in that war, Venice, the, the, the main islands uh, were never attacked. The ones, they were they were able to hold the Genoans off. Otherwise, you know, Venice would have fallen. And so I just uh, give that credit to Othello. Um, by the same token, taking the Merchant of Venice, which sort of focuses on the merchant world of Venice and this moneylender Shylock, um, I was able to, you know, move that into the 13th century and and Jews had been sort of persecuted in Europe back to, you know, the first century. So that's, that's sort of a theme that you're going to have in any... In any play or any anything that you set, and you have Jewish people in it, but it was a bit harsher in the in the 13th century than it is in in uh, Shakespeare's 16th century, and and so moving, you know, Shylock to be a moneylender at the time when there's a holy war with the Muslims, you know, I just thought there was a great conflict going there, and and making the plots work together, uh, it wasn't as hard. It was it was difficult. There was a lot of you know sort of sliding pieces, but that's. I don't think that's very interesting to talk about. The fun thing was that as I had, there's an enormous number of characters. I think there's 38 named characters in the two plays. And that's way too long for a comic novel. Um, way too many. But as I started to see who could I cut and who could I keep, you can see that Shakespeare's writing for a a troupe of actors. Because you go, oh, well, obviously whoever played Portia is also Desdemona. And whoever played um, Antonio is also Iago, um, and so in each of the plays, there's sort of a counter character that would it, it pretty obviously be performed by the same person. And so in many of those cases, I, re, I was able to um, make those characters a single person.
1: Well, so you said that Venice is a perfect city for a monster story. Like, what is it mm-hmm. about Venice that makes it so perfect for monsters?
2: Well, it's well, it's very old, and and some of the streets are so narrow that. Um you literally or I literally have to turn sideways to get through so my shoulders don't and I'm not an enormous guy so my shoulders don't hit either side and yet it's a marked street and the buildings are buttressed to keep from caving in on each other at the top and um and then there's these wellheads everywhere you go because Venice is you know often below sea level um the freshwater wellheads are these sort of raised um Concrete things or brick things that are and then some of them are as high as six foot tall, and they have these these big iron lids on top of them and that's so when Venice floods every winter, when tourists aren 't there, um, the salt water doesn't get into their freshwater supply and um, and I just thought, well, you know something creepy's going to come out of there <laughs> for sure and and the idea that if there was something in the water, it could go anywhere in the city unseen and then just sort of pop up attack somebody and then be gone again and no one would you know because the water uh in the canals of venice is not clear i mean you can't see six inches underneath the water there so um that was really what made it so creepy and 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 it sort of maintains this byzantine medieval look to the city it doesn't really even though it's sort of most of what's left was built in the renaissance because of the Um, there was a point where Venice was part of the Byzantine Empire or basically owned the Byzantine Empire because they took Constantinople. Um, and, and that part of the architecture sort of maintains there that you don't find in other, um, Italian cities. So, so it's just that, that, that sort of, you know, it's a city of water. Um, and, and, you know, if you're going to have a monster in the water, it would, he could get around pretty well. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, the monster could show up anywhere. So, so, for example, the book opens kind of with this scene we mentioned out of Poe's Cask of Montiato where pocket mm-hmm. is chained to a wall. And, uh, and except in your version, this monster comes up out of the water and performs sex acts on him. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you come up with that idea?
2: Interesting. I mean, years ago, this is what happens. This is why you never throw anything away as far as ideas go. I'm, I'm a hoarder as far as notebooks go. Years ago, um, a woman named Michelle Schlung um, asked me to contribute a, a story to, uh, an anthology was doing of, of just that of sexy horror stories. And I, I came up with the idea of a guy who was chained in a, in a dungeon that the tide came in and out of, and that something had come into the water and, uh, which he couldn't see. It was dark in the dungeon. And, and because he was, his arms were chained to the wall and it, and it sort of got him off to, to, uh, <laughs> to just to be quick about it. And, um, and I just, I thought, well, that would be, and then he, at the end of that story, he realizes that this is just a baby, um, thing, creature in the water and that it's going to grow teeth. And that's the end of the story. It was <laughs> like, dun, dun, dun. and I never wrote the story and I, I had a a nice exchange with the editor with michelle schlong and i i said i i was on deadline for a book and i said i don't have time to do this i don't know if it's even a good idea but when i started writing um you know about a fool being walled up in a dungeon i thought that's really not enough <laughs> um and i want a monster in this and so so that's what made uh, made it occur to me it was just sort of going back to my old notes from like the late 90s for a short story that i'd never written
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I'd sort of imagine that when you start off a book with interspecies bondage sex, you expect to maybe lose a few readers. Do you think that's the case?
2: Don't care. <laughs> um, you know, the way I look at it is, is they, I mean, there's really a genre now that I had to be told there was of monster sex. You know, in that whole paranormal romance thing, there's a lot of inner monster boning going on, and and I and and you know, I have been told. This, by because I'm sort of on the edge of that. I did a series of vampire books that were I had started in like 1994 before, evidently vampires were a thing, and it was just sort of normal people trying to date a vampire and the and the, and dealing with normal lifetime things like who does the laundry and wait I don't use toilet paper why should I have to buy toilet paper hmm. and that sort of stuff and I just wanted the whole comic aspect of it um, and then but I picked up this audience you know probably about you know the mid o's about 2004 2005 of these romance people and and you know having not been to that section of the bookstore i didn't know that it, uh, the whole genre of paranormal n- normal romance had had arisen and they said well yeah we're our book club is reading your book this weekend and i was like oh okay and i did a couple of of um Events with romance writers of America and stuff like that, just from people who, you know, not that I had ever intended to write romances, but they said, "Oh yeah, monster boning is the thing now," <laughs> um, and so I don't, you know, it, it's as tastefully done as you can do interspecies bondage porn, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I had a, I wrote a book in the late '90s um, called "The Listen and a Melancholy Cove," where, you know, it's like a hundred foot sea monster and this retired b-movie actress and they have a thing and in, in which she uses a weed whacker as a um sex toy i guess for any lack of any better term and you know that was way weirder than what goes on in this book uh, so <laughs> so and that was you know nearly 15 years ago so I, if I would have lost, I already lost those people a long time ago, David, I'm not I'm <laughs> worried about losing them now. If you have a problem with my, mon- and, and I said it in that book too, it was like, it just, we just know that something happened and the weed whacker was used and the monster got off and then they were just both sort of laying side by side, smoking cigarettes and that, you know, we panched the fireplace in between. So, and it was, and it says right in that book and what happened right after that was just none of your business. <laughs> um, so, uh, So that's sort of the way this one works, too. There's no sort of graphic description of what's going on. You just know that something really bizarre has gone on. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Well, it's funny, you know, speaking of that kind of bodiness in Shakespeare, uh, when I was in college, Shakespeare and Love came out. Mm -hmm. And one of of the girls in my class said, uh, you know, there's just like, for example, there's a random scene in that movie where Christopher Marlowe walks in on the theater owner having sex and they have a kind of a casual conversation. And this girl said it's it's so out of place to have this sort of like random sex scene in a shakes in a story about Shakespeare. And I was kind of like that seems completely wrong to me. It seems totally <laughs> to me it seems totally appropriate to have this sort of bodiness in Shakespeare because Shakespeare was a really body author it seems to me.
2: I think I yeah I think that I I tend to not um apply too much historical from Shakespeare's time, but when we're having this conversation I think it it helps to realize that You know, Shakespeare is basically writing, um, in a time where there's pilgrims becoming a dominant political force in England, you know, and they're going to be so straight laced and so freaked out by anything that they're, they're going to get thrown out of the straightest, most Christian nation in the world at that point and sent to the U.S. where they can turn into, you know, school boards in Mississippi and stuff like that, I guess. And, um and and you know it it just i think i don't think it occurred to me until I, I was watching like one of the episodes of black adder and they actually show the puritans coming to someone's house and 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 so the, you know shakespeare was working within a pretty strict format i mean his his practices and standards people were tougher than probably they are in NBC. and yet he got away with a lot the, there's a scene in um a couple of scenes in uh, Love, Slaver Lost, where I, I, I want to say the character is Rosalind, but it might have been Rosam- Rosamond. And she just keeps going on about a fool needs to hit it, hit it good. And, and it's clearly they're talking about spanking and, and, and sort of body, uh, you know, light S&M sex and so forth. It's clear that's what's going on and it's only if you just had closed your mind at all to that possibility at all that you would miss that as part of what Shakespeare is having fun with. And, um, uh, the beginning of a fellow, uh, uh, Iago yells out, even now the black ram is tupping your, uh, your white you and, you know, screaming to Brabantio, who is, uh, who is Desdemona's father. And there's a lot of, uh, Stallion and your white horse, and and all this black guy boning your daughter, kind of screaming among the crowds and so forth, which at that time was probably about as body as you could say it.
1: Mm -hmm. I guess I did want to mention that um, Othello and Merchant of Venice are two Shakespeare plays that deal a lot with prejudice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you just talk about how you chose to deal with that in your book?
2: Well, a couple of things. I wanted to sort of enlighten the reader a little bit about. The history, the medieval history of uh, of the persecution of of Jews all through Europe, and a couple of things have. I mean, it, just prior to the setting of this book, all the Jews were expelled from France. They were priorly all the Jews were expelled from England, um, and this is in the in the eleven and twelve hundreds. And and in these different countries where Jews were just sort of forced to not live, they um, they ended up in in. Venice, because Venice had seen itself, Venice, because they had no land, they were not a fiefdom. They had been a republic by the 1200s. They had already been a republic for 400 years with representative uh, senators from each neighborhood. And, uh, you know, that's pretty progressive for the times. And they prided themselves very much on that. And so they, even though they weren't that great to the Jews, they were much better to the Jews than other countries had been. And so, I, and, and you see that in the play. The, the characters in The Merchant of Venice are real, they're dicks to Shylock. Um, and that's happening 300, almost 300 years after my book takes place. So I wanted to sort of give details to that. I wanted to show that, you know, even in those times, the Jews were forced to wear, you know, uh, yellow stars sewed on their clothes. The thing that we think is you know, sort of originated with the Warsaw Ghetto, and the Nazis didn't. you know it, it originated in the Middle Ages, and Jews were often accused of poisoning wells um in England. all the you know, be, Jews were not allowed to own property. And so one of the reasons that you have the prefix gold in a lot of people's Jewish names is they became jewelers and held gold because they couldn't hold real estate. And they became money lenders because they couldn't hold real estate and so so I don't think I didn't know that before I did research in this and i and I you know despite it's a comic novel and and the biggest concern is I want to entertain and make people laugh is I thought it would be interesting to them to, how did Shylock become a money lender? Well, he became a money lender because he didn't have any choice um in a fellow, they mentioned it's you know there's sort of a conventional scholar wisdom that it is not a story about race. Um it is a story about an outsider. You know, whether race is I mean, the person who refers to Othello's color most often is Othello. But you know, Iago and Rodrigo who are sort of the bad guys of the play, they are blatantly racist. You know, later on, you know, Iago sort of develops and, um, his hatred toward Othello. Um, and he's sort of the most mustache twisting villain in all of Shakespeare. He and Richard III are sort of the two worst sociopaths, um, in, in the entire Shakespeare canon and it makes it fun. Most of, you know, Othello may get the name of the play, but most of the lines go to Iago talking about, you know, all the people he doesn't trust, and how specifically he doesn't trust Othello, and it's almost incidental that Othello is black, and um, it so so it's addressed, and I think I I just underline it a little bit and try to stay less about the race and more about the complete sort of ridiculous lines that people draw and pocket because he's in the sort of the midst of the action, making fun of everything. He he takes advantage of that. He points out to the Venetians and uh, their own prejudice. And at one point, he has one of uh, Antonio's men convinced that um, out on the Judica, the which is the island where all the Jews are sort of not exiled, but they're forced to live. It's called it the Island Ghetto of Venice, and it's still there and still called that. Um, he's, he convinces Antonio's men that he's trained thieving monkeys that, that only understand how to communicate. They only communicate in Hebrew, and they completely buy it because it's so foreign to them. No, no Gentile would ever set foot on the Judica. So whatever goes on out there becomes mythical almost. Um, and, uh, and that's the most important thing to the play. The prejudice is always about the other. And the parallels to you know, what we've just gone through in, in America, you know, I originally wrote Fool because I thought that I wasn't hearing any political truth from anybody except comedians. And I thought that's what a fool does, you know. And and John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and Bill Maher and, you know, on and on. Those guys are 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 fools. Those are the ones that'll tell you, hey, you know, this. Really, nobody gives a fuck about Flight 370, and nobody really cares about, you know, Benghazi and and so forth. And and that's true. And you, but you're not going to hear that from people who who whose interest it is to foam it. These stories and and froth up all all these things that aren't really true.
1: Uh, I mean, so when you say you know Stephen Colbert and John Stewart and Bill Maher speaking truth to power in their capacity as uh, as comedians, and you um are sort of in that same position, do you do you feel that your books change people's minds at all uh, on these sorts of issues?
2: I don't think so. I, I I think they're a little bit too far removed, to be honest with you. And I'm and I'm okay with it. Uh, I mean, I don't. Uh, I, I mean, I have—I don't—I don't want to say a lot, but I, I, have, I have quite a few readers who who will say because I'm I'm more outspoken um, in social media about my politics than I am in my books, and I'll have people. I love your books, but I don't agree with any of your politics, and I'm fine with that, you know. Um, but it's not so much that I don't want to address those issues. I don't think that um, there's just no shelf life, David. To be honest with you, to political humor and fiction, you know all my books. My first book came out in 1991, and all my books are still in print. And if I had really focused them on on contemporary politics at the time, they would be sort of meaningless at this point. Um, and, and so, I, I it's 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 the way science fiction. I know a lot of your listeners are science fiction things. It's the way the Twilight Zone used to talk about McCarthyism in the and racism in the early 1960s you know and uh, the uh if you remember the episode where everybody looks like a pig and the girl who we would think is gorgeous is you know she's different and um and and sort of the the whole not one of us theme that goes through like uh the uh body snatchers and so forth that's basically science fiction commenting on on current politics but you can still watch those things today and they're still enjoyable because they're not specific to the time and and as the people who were writing those richard matheson and people like that pointed out they could do that when nobody else could you know nobody was their their shields are going to go up as soon as somebody started to talk about something that they disagreed with which is you know much more manifest in people like Marr and and stewart and colbert um than it is with with people who write fiction so basically i i just like i I don't want you to have to have read Shakespeare to enjoy these books. But if you have, it enriches it, I think. You get some of the inside jokes. But if you don't get them, it should still be a fun story. That's the way I I look at it. And I sort of feel about any political commentary. If you see parallels in there, if if you get a perspective because you're coming at it from an oblique angle, that's great. But if you don't, you should still be able to enjoy the book.
1: Uh, I guess I'm just curious. What do you think about Colbert taking over for David Letterman?
2: I think it'll be interesting. I, I haven't seen Colbert out of character very much. Um, I But I'm old enough to remember when Letterman first started showing up and doing guest hosting on on Johnny Carson, and he seemed so harsh compared to Johnny Carson. And then as time went on, he seemed just like, the goofy guy that lives next door to you and swims at the Y um and and I think the 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 seminal part of of letterman of what Letterman was good at is he never stopped enjoying being a goofy guy and I think he i think he's a nice guy I think he's an ethically nice guy and I think that Colbert is as well um I mean he's clearly very very talented and and if he can bring that talent and apply that talent in a format like the late show, the way he did with Colbert and the way he did as a correspondent on the daily show, I think it'll be terrific. Um, I I mean, look, we could have ended up with like Carson Daly or, you know, Ryan Seacrest or, you know, just some haircut doing it. And, uh, so, you know, so I'm, I'm grateful that there's somebody that's got some talent. I don't get to see Letterman very often, but, uh, but I like him a lot. Um, I, I don't know what the politics was behind it. I don't know if they looked at um, um, the Scottish guy. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on it. It's still early for me, David. <laughs> um, but I mean, I like him. Craig Kill Ferguson. Craig Ferguson. Craig Ferguson, who I love, but he's so almost meta. You know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> he's, just, he's just so sort of self referential and talks about the process a lot. And I and I like that, and he's fun. But I think that you know the, the the that show needs to be a little more showy than that but you know we'll see we'll yeah. see i i but i i i like colbert i hope he does well mm-hmm. and i've ha- had friends that have gone on the show and said that he just couldn't be a nicer guy when you meet him in person so you know i always i always uh hope for a lot of success for people who are who are decent human beings
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, you mentioned Richard Matheson. I actually saw that when you were first starting out, you wanted to be a horror writer, and were influenced by Richard Matheson and Robert Block and authors like that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Those were those were the guys I learned. Well, I you know I don't want to give them responsibility for stuff I didn't, <laughs> learn, but but when I was first getting the idea that I wanted to be a, a writer, those were the people who I read constantly. Uh, everything I could get my hands on by Robert Block and Richard Matheson, and then the sort of. I don't want to say they're peripheral, but they're peripheral in my memory. But but the guys who are writing stuff sort of on the edge of of the Cthulhu mythos, um, um, like Frank Belknap Long, and um, I, I really liked Fritz Leiber a lot. Um, but it was the short story guys who wrote these sort of twist ending, um, stories like like Matheson and Block that I I really cut my teeth on, and Ray Bradbury of course, um, and um. Just every time there would be an anthology and one of those guys would have a story in it, I would just be, you know, over the moon about it. And and as craftsmen, they were brilliant. I, I think the, the, anything that speaks to how brilliant Matheson was is he's got to have sold more short stories to the film and television than anybody ever, ever, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know how many, you probably know how many uh, Twilight Zones he wrote. I don't, but it had to be like close to half of them. Um, so, uh, you know, just a, a a brilliantly talented guy that understood structure and, and convention and, and, uh, you know, sort of took you into it in a real economy way. When, when you're, when you're trying to learn your craft, that was a great thing. I was just, the problem was the people laughed at my horror stories when I would read them at conferences. Hmm. And I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe that's what I do. So, but I did, I really thought that I was going to write sort of uh, those, those sorts of stories. Mm-hmm. when I was coming up. Do you
1: still read much in the way of kind of fantasy and science fiction short stories and
2: anything like that? Not much. I um, I really don't. I, I it, And it's really a time thing. I mean, if I was just left on my own devices and I was doing some other job like I have often done, I, I probably would read more. But um, I, I don't read that many short stories just because I don't seek them out and I don't write them. For economic reasons, you know, I quit writing short stories a long time ago because I thought, if I'm going to make a living at this, I have to do, I have to write novels. And sort of once I was into the the novel sort of groove, um, I don't compartmentalize well. I don't multitask well. If I'm working on a novel, I'm usually not working on anything else. And coming up with a short story takes just as long. And and so I tend to read things that are either research for what I'm writing, which of which there is a lot or um novels um but you know i i i read uh i probably should read like the world's best every year and i don't because i used to really enjoy those you know the ones that you know um ellen uh, datlow and uh, and was it gardner dozois yeah how yeah. do you say his, how do you say yeah. his name yeah it yeah i i they they do a great job of of sort of finding the the gems and and I, uh, I'm i remiss in not actually reading them, but that's not their fault or the writer's fault. It's just that I, I just don't get to it. I'm, I've am i sort of almost lost my vocabulary for short stories. And that was so critical in learning how to write, you know, that, uh, you yeah. know, well, now you've made me feel bad. That's all I'm going to say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this will cheer you up. We have some listener questions for you. Okay, cool. So, uh Jason Wells asks, "What is the best use of the phrase heinous fuckery most foul you've ever heard?"
2: Hmm. I probably used it. I don't I, I don't want to be self-aggrandizing, <laughs> but since I sort of had it in my vocabulary before anybody else, um it it probably had something to do with with something going on with Congress or or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But but it doesn't get used that much outside of me using it. You know, it's not like you, you're sort of like flipping channels, and all of a sudden, you know, Ellen is going. Oh, well, that's heinous <laughs> fuckery, most foul. But it would certainly there's you you probably couldn't should. get yeah you probably couldn't get a get through a good uh, uh, episode of of the nightly news without finding a very appropriate place to put heinous fuckery most foul in there so uh but you don't to answer the question in the short manner you really don't hear it used that often but i'm all for promoting the uh the phrase
1: all right cool and so then kelly belly ca says if you could be any viking living or dead real or fictional which one
2: would you be and why any viking living or dead hmm (laughs) well i that's like i what i can name like maybe what three vikings um I would say the 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 head guy on the show Vikings. I don't even know what the character's name is, you know, but uh, but you know, he seems to rock the hatchet pretty well. <laughs> and <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Hagar the Horrible. I don't know Tony Curtis in the Vikings from whatever that was made in 1959 or something like that. Yeah, I think
1: I would say Leif Erikson because that's the only Vikings name. It's a,
2: exactly it's the only I can. And you're like and Eric the Red was like he was old school. So you want like the. The Rock and re- Revolutionary Leif Erikson Viking, yeah. There, there's not. Uh, unfortunately, the fact that their their written language didn't really survive too much. There's not a lot of famous Vikings. Hmm.
1: Okay, and so then Mar- Marissa asks, "Fuck socks. Why three? I mean, why not
2: five? Um, for those for the uninitiated, um, when I was writing a book called uh, "You Suck a Love Story," I had. I was going to have this goth girl character, and at the time was sort of the the golden days of MySpace, and which what and what that meant was that everybody was writing blogs because really the the format of MySpace was the blog, and all over the internet were these goth blogs. There were specific sites that were goth blogs, and a few of them still exist, but they're not nearly as um, as prolific as they were in those days. And so I would pick up. Sort of the idiom for my yeah you know, I didn't want to be like the creepy old guy hanging out where the goth kids were and and eavesdropping although I did that a little bit um, and and so I would sort of lurk like a creepy old guy on these goth blog chat sites and so forth and um and pick up the vocabulary and I and the thing that cracked me up is one kid one day you know wrote oh fuck socks I'm got to go to you know the PTA meeting or something like that and I thought it was hilarious so I I have my character use that. And then to do, uh, people wanted me to start making merchandise. And so I said, okay, I'll do it, but only for charity because I don't want to be in the t shirt business. And what should I make? What do you guys want? You're, I'm doing this by request. So what do you want? everybody said, oh, make fuck socks a real thing. <laughs> and I happened to have a friend who had this company called Throcks. And his idea, his big promotable idea was to sell socks in threes so that when the dryer ate one or wherever, whatever, you know, over pocket that you're, Socks disappear into you, always had a spare, and and which I, I have to tell you, that never friggin' works. I have a <laughs> bunch of pairs of Throcks, which are these three socks in a package, and always two of them are lost now. So, anyway, that happened. <laughs> and so, when it came time, and I thought, well, okay, if I make fuck socks, I don't know how to make socks. I don't know how to contact anybody to make socks. And I'll talk to Edwin Heaven, who, in, who invented Throcks. And I said, can we make fuck socks? And he says, yeah, but I'm going to only do it if it's Throcks. And that's how they ended up being three of them, is he would only make them in threes, mm-hmm. even though it was not economically really and i we would it, when when we were selling them at all the profits, all the proceeds in fact went to m s research um but I was always encouraging people you know if you buy two, you end up with three pairs because there's three in a package but uh um and we I just got a whole bunch of what was the medieval version which is what pocket came up with which are fuck stockings and i just bought the last of those that were left i'm going to try and give them away at my events for this book tour
1: <laughs> all right cool and then uh, you know after this interview i'm going to be discussing the recent movie noah with two bible scholars and mm-hmm. i figure you're practically a bible scholar yourself as the author of lamb which is being Uh-oh. taught in seminaries now uh huh so i was just wondering if you had seen that movie and if you have any opinions about it
2: no i i really dislike russell crowe in the extreme i I mean uh, so i and that's that doesn't mean i'm sure he's a lovely easter bunny like person and um you know bless his heart but i just don't like watching them so i didn't go to see noah but uh, let me say this i'm somewhat skeptical about the flood (laughs) Um, (laughs) and i'm i'm even more skeptical that all like seven million species of animals were were put in a box, of which the dimensions are incredibly specific in Genesis. So, uh, and there it's and my thought in having done just the rough math is it wasn't a big enough fucking box. So, yeah, it would um, need to
1: be at least twice as big for that story to be plausible, right?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm completely okay, and and having written. A lot of, I had of, of sort of religions that start up or or sort of introduced myself into them to see if they'll make sense. And, and Lamb, certainly the most specific. Um, it's I'm okay with, you know, a long time ago I said to somebody, you know, a myth is just someone else's religion you don't believe in. I mean, what we look at is Greek myths or North myths. Those were somebody's religion at one time. You just don't believe it. And that's sort of what I look at Noah as. It's you know, and and there was, and I'm sure these guys you talked to this afternoon are going to tell you that, prior to, whatever extant copies of the Old Testament we have, you know, that that have survived, um, there were Greek myths of, of mass deluges, and and those themes, uh, sort of occur through history over and over and over again. And then you know, Joseph Campbell, it was his life work to identify those themes and and he and Jung sort of said these are themes that are sort of hardwired into us you know what I think Jung called them archetypes and and the entire um, science of folklore talks about motifs that exist in cultures that have never had any contact that we know of or couldn't possibly have had any contact historically and yet they rise the same the same with the same um myth like lot and looking back and his wife turning to a, a pillar of salt the chinese have one where a guy is told don't look back and he looks back and his wife turns into a mulberry tree and those motifs which re- you know recur so um in short i'm sure it's fun to watch people get washed away by a giant flood just like it is to watch them be crushed by giant sandworms. but i don't believe in either one of those things is having really happened
1: Okay, cool. And so we're just about out of time. Uh, do you just want to talk about any other recent or upcoming projects you've got going on?
2: Um, you know what? I can't really think about much, but the fact that I'm, I've got about you know six weeks to tour for uh, The Serpent of Venice, and I'm adapting the play of Fool for the stage with uh, Joe Disher, who's a, a a prominent stage director and, and, uh, and actor. And you know, uh, uh, the next thing I'm going to be doing is a sequel to my book, uh, Dirty Job, which is where the guy uh, gets the job of being deaf and he runs it out of a secondhand store in San Francisco. And uh, I've never, I, and I just want to apologize that this interview wasn't that funny because <laughs> it's all, I leave it all in the books, you guys. It's all in the books. The books are <laughs> much funnier than I am. Yeah, great. And so, I mean, just the best luck with your six-week book tour.
1: And I just really want to thank you, Chris, for taking the time to speak with
2: us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. I really do appreciate it.
1: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Christopher Moore for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing the recent Darren Aronofsky movie, Noah, based on the Bible story of Noah's Ark. And this will involve spoilers for Noah, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined today by my two favorite Bible scholars, So first up we've got Robert M. Price. He's a former Baptist minister who holds PhDs in systematic theology and the New Testament. He's the author of such books as The Amazing Colossal Apostle, Inerrant the Wind, and The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and also the host of the podcasts The Bible Geek and The Lovecraft Geek. So Bob, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, thanks. And also joining us today is Richard Carrier. He holds a PhD in ancient history from Columbia and is the author of such books as Not the Impossible Faith, Proving History, and the Upcoming on the Historicity of Jesus. So, Richard, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so before we get to the movie, I just wanted to ask something. So, you know, I mentioned that Bob also hosts a podcast on H.P. Lovecraft, so he's obviously a big fantasy fan. But how about Richard? Are you a big fantasy and science fiction fan?
3: Uh, ish, yeah.
1: Um. I mean, I... I... <laughs>
3: Maybe not to the extent as uh, as Bob, although I, I am an HP Lovecraft
1: fan, so uh, so we share that in common. Bravo! <laughs> um, yeah, and, and Bob's actually a fairly well known author and editor in the field uh, in terms of HP Lovecraft uh, anthologies and stories and stuff. So people, if you're interested in Lovecraft, definitely look up Robert M. Price uh, Lovecraft stuff. But so do you guys see uh, a similarity between Bible studies and fantasy and science fiction? I mean, I'm a, um, I've never been religious. And so when I go to see a movie like Noah, I kind of go into it with the same mind frame as I would go to see Clash of the Titans or something. It's, just, it's sort of just another fantasy movie to me. Uh, is this different for you guys, having, being former Christians and Bible experts and stuff like that?
0: Well, I do look at it exactly like Clash of the Titans, which I thought was terrific. And I love Noah, too. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't help but think that uh, all the people screaming about how unfaithful to the Bible this movie is if there were a sect of uh, literalistic believers in the olympian gods they'd have been screaming the same way at the other movies and that uh, <laughs> they don't own the copyright on this stuff and uh, nobody ever said it was supposed to be an exact transcript uh, of of the bible any more than uh, lord of the rings is going to be exactly like tolkien's books
3: yeah uh well i mean i I can look at it from the perspective of like how faithful is it to the original, the same way you would do like if someone made a movie out of a book, like a novel or something like you know Harry Potter films, you can talk about how they deviate from the the text um but it's understood that people do that, but I can also approach it like just forget all of that and say like if I knew nothing about the Bible or the history of Judaism or any of that, and I saw this movie, I would think it was a pretty cool movie. it's <laughs> <I was> like <laughs> this is like massively creative, like who thought of all this stuff um Although I would have some nitpicks about the aesthetics that sort of cinematic issues. Um, I think some of the characters were poorly developed, for example. There there are aspects of things like that. And there are certain cliches in it as well that that are a little eye rolling. But uh, so I could critique it as a film in its own right. Uh, I I don't really, I'm not like offended that it uh, it reimagines the story. Although it's interesting that a lot of the, there's two different kinds of changes he made. I mean, one are changes that are actually based, On the Apocrypha, like actual Talmudic legends and things like that that the Jews had, because it's something the Christians assume they own this story, but it's really a Jewish story. And the Jews had their own books and other writings that aren't in our Old Testament, uh, where they talked more about the story and had their own speculations and stuff. And he actually includes some of those in this, like explicitly. So he actually went outside the the Old Testament, looked at other Jewish literature about the Noah story and included it. But then he also made changes that I think were very curious. They're almost a way that he's daring Christians to repudiate the movie because by doing so they'd be repudiating their own gospel. And I could I could talk about that if you're interested. I I have a particular theory about certain things he did to the to the storyline.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, I'd love to hear that.
1: Yeah, no, let's definitely get into that in in a bit. I guess just first of all, do you guys have any other thoughts? Just how much did you enjoy the movie? Just as a as a movie, what kinds of. Things did you like or dislike about it, leaving the Bible stuff aside for this for a moment?
0: Well, I thought they did a, a really fine job of uh, intricately plotting the things so that uh, earlier scenes were followed up by later ones in, a, in ways I had not suspected. And looking back, you could see these little narrative seeds planted, almost like Noah planting that uh, seed from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, uh, the various items in it, I thought, were striking and uh, uh, really interesting, like the the idea that Tubal Cain became almost a surrogate father for Ham, uh, which is kind of interesting since Genesis implies Noah and Tubal Cain are brothers. Uh And uh it, it, I don't think they mean to, but they're like the two different sources uh, having to do with the children of Lamech. And one of them has uh, uh Lamech's uh, three sons, Mike, Robbie, and Chit. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jubal, Jabel, or however you say it, and Tubal Cain. And the other has uh, Noah as Lamech's son. And uh, I- if they'd have been able to um, make that connection in the movie, that would have been even stronger, though there's a, a good reason they switched Noah to Seth's line, I think. And and that, as Richard says, involves uh, apocryphal pseudepigraphical material because they're drawing on Sethian Gnosticism, as we find it in the Nag Hammadi texts, that humanity was divided into the Sethian and Cainite lines. And that uh, when, um, I think it's Ham, says that uh, we don't have kings, Uh, Whereas Tubal Kang brags about being king, well, that reflects directly the Sethian self-designation as the kingless race. And they wanted, I think, to uh, explain or at least account implicitly for why Noah was not among the wicked. Uh, Well, because he was part of this pure, uh, enlightened race. Ah, uh, the Bible doesn't make that connection, but the but it it makes sense in the film. Um, so uh, even there, the characterization of Cain was really interesting. It was almost like in the Star Trek episode where Kirk is uh, divided into two by a transporter accident. You have the the pacifistic but indecisive good guy and the uh, animalistic, lustful but courageous bad guy, and you you kind of had two sides of the same character there. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess
1: maybe Richard. Maybe we should get into this. What from this movie is purely invented by the filmmakers? What's from the Old Testament and what's from the Apocrypha?
3: Oh gosh, that would be too much to discuss. <laughs> but uh, something to give you an example of something that they got from the Talmud, for example. And I noticed a lot of people were asking about what's this sohar mineral that they're talking mm-hmm. about that that this that sparks and causes light and even has at one point has a gun. The tubal cane shoots a gun with it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they they went really creative with that, but the the germ of the idea comes from uh, in the Old Testament. It says God commanded uh, Noah to to build a sohar for the ark so that it would be illuminated. and And some people think that just means a window, but Talmudic rabbis speculated that sohar was a magic crystal that would illuminate the the ark from within. And so uh, it looks like the writers latched onto that idea and then made it a a, a metaphor for oil because it was the, the mineral that the wicked people were destroying the earth to acquire, right? To build their cities and f- power their cities. Um, so that that idea that it was a mineral that the people were seeking, and so that's an invention of the writers of, of the film. But the germ of the idea comes from Talmudic legends about the Noah story, the, this idea of this magic crystal that would illuminate the ark.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this idea of these wicked people destroying the earth is, is certainly a major feature of the story. And this movie, I had never imagined... Uh, Noah's time as being like so much like Mad Max. I mean, that's really what it made me think of, right? Um, what do you, What do you guys think of the the way that the filmmakers chose to use this really post apocalyptic science fiction imagery? I think to portray this time.
3: Well, it's a neat idea because I. It's funny because they kind of this brings up a question that relates to your question earlier about how they changed the text and how they borrowed from things because the way they incorporated the Watchers into the story both. Has again, it's like gets a germ of an idea from other literature, like the Book of Enoch. But then they changed it around a little bit. And w- when they started the film, they talked about the cities being giant and and rapacious and devouring the earth. And so I thought that they were suggest. And the Watchers taught them how to build the cities and stuff. So they were they were implying that at that point that the Nephilim, who were the the children of the Watchers and Earth women, according to the Genesis, the Watchers came down and had sex with Earth women and created the Nephilim, who were these immense giants who were hundreds of feet tall and and were devouring the whole environment and and, and devouring people and everything and uh but th- in the beginning they're making it seem like the cities were the nephilim and I was like oh that's a really clever reinterpretation of that that the cities are the the children of the watchers and and that that they're sort of metaphorically and but in literally devouring the earth in in that sense but later on then they they make the watchers play the role of the nephilim in the story because the the watchers are the actual people walking around on the earth that you know have these physical bodies that was that idea was is based on the giants the, the in, in Genesis and in Enoch. So they sort of conflated and played around with this idea.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I mean, Bob, what do you think of these Watchers as these rock monsters? I mean, how are they having sex with anyone if they're all made out of rock? <laughs> well,
0: they oh, cut well, that out. <laughs> they, yeah, uh, <laughs> they, now they, the sin of the, the Watchers. And by the way, I think the reason they felt at liberty to conflate the two was that at least by virtue of a pun, as often in Genesis, uh, they seem to link the Nephilim as meaning fallen ones, whether it originally did or not, uh, with the sons of God who mated with mortal women uh, so that uh, you could say they both were implicated in the fall, so what the heck, why not make them the same? Uh, (laughs) One of them is even called Semyaza, which is the name of the leader of the fallen sons of God in either the book of Jubilees or one of these books. It's an Enoch. Uh, and, You're right? Um, yeah. And uh, I, I thought it was real. Oh, yeah. Uh, so um, they were originally seraphim, these flaming angels, and their sin was really more like Prometheus. That he, they took pity on the fallen Adam and Eve and tried to help them in their mess of a situation. And God apparently didn't feel that uh, they were entitled to the help. And so he cut them off and, and imprisoned them in the rock bodies. Well, that I don't know if there's any um, biblical or apocryphal, um, Basis for that, but it does kind of reflect the Kabbalistic and Originist view of uh, Adam and Eve as originally having bodies of light, and then being incarcerated in physical bodies after their sin. And so they, I guess, they figured, well, the same sort of a thing when the the Watchers fell uh, out of at least out of God's favor, he uh, he Im- uh, incarcerated them too in these bodies of stone. And I love the idea. Now it's a big, big thing in uh, the testaments of the 12 patriarchs, the book of Jubilees, the first Enoch and so on, that, um, they did, the watchers did give humans help, but rather dubious help. Because, uh, they taught women the use of the seductive and cosmetic arts and taught men the use of weapons. And so they apparently thought this was a good idea and it backfired. And so they worked into that, this fantasy notion of like a, uh, an ancient pre-Diluvian Atlantis-like advanced technology. Uh, and, uh, and as to the despoiling of the earth, that kind of makes sense because, um, Aronofsky's making the punishment the crime why is it necessary for the earth to be wiped clean uh well they the earth had been destroyed they infer Uh, otherwise god could have just sent him a bunch of poison lunch buckets (laughs) with uh, with, uh, the children of israel but no the the earth has to be renewed like uh, by a cleansing baptism so i i didn't think this was a a painful import of some anachronistic environmentalism It made loads of sense to me.
3: Yeah, indeed. Um, and also because, you know, the, the Genesis story actually says that the Nephilim were destroying the earth, that they were, they were consuming everything. So it actually, it has a biblical basis. Uh, but also in the book of Enoch, uh, it does say that the, the watchers for their crimes are imprisoned in the earth, meaning a pit or something, but you can see how you could sort of play yeah. on that. They're imprisoned in earth, meaning rocks. Uh, so right, the rock yes. bodies. Um, but also I found it interesting because it, it had this D and D is dungeons and dragons connection because what they looked like were elementals, right? They looked like earth elementals. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the elementals were actually uh, equated with the demons that were the, the ultimate children of the the descendants of, of the watchers, uh, in the new Testament. Cause that's it, Paul warns against, uh, worshiping the elementals, right? Uh and the so that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's uh it's, so it does all I mean it's a very clever way of using all of these different ideas and then coming up with a way to make them fit into a their own particular story. So it, it it's it's the sort of an amalgamation of their own ideas with these germs of these other ideas from other literature about the Noah story and about the the cosmology and all of that.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I mean, Bob mentions this, is, was it necessary for God to drown everyone? And, and certainly coming from my perspective as a not being religious, this just seems like a horrific <laughs> thing to do, right? Uh, you know, and however bad these people may have been, drowning just seems like a cruel and unusual punishment, right? I, I wonder, is do you think that God is portrayed as a sympathetic character in this movie, or is he sort of more of a villain in this movie? Oh, that's
3: interesting. I, I didn't really think of it in those terms, but uh what i'd mentioned i mentioned before that i think some of this is designed to dare christians to repudiate the movie uh in order to repudiate their gospel because there's there's two things to give an example of that is in in the apocrypha the jewish apocrypha the watchers burn in hell forever right but in the movie and this is a spoiler alert uh they ask God for forgiveness at a key moment in the film, and they're forgiven and they get saved, right? Now, what is that? Yeah. That's the Christian gospel, right? So so they actually made the story more Christian. And so for the Christians to repudiate the story because it went off text is to really force Christians to expose the fact that they're bibliolators, that they're worshiping the Bible, not the gospel. So I think mm. that's a rather clever thing to do because it, it it kind of exposes a Christian as caring more about the literal word of the Bible Rather than the actual meaning of the gospel and what they should be doing, and that's the other thing about about Noah being, you know, advocating a lifestyle of you know poverty and and simplicity and nonviolence. Mostly, <laughs> he does engage in some violence, uh, which is more of a Jesus-like lifestyle than uh, than you know would would normally be portrayed. But the key thing though is when no- when Noah is going to kill the babies because he thinks it's God's will to end the human line, and so he's going to he's got the knife poised above his granddaughters to kill them as babies. And he, he stays his hand, which, of course, is a sort of play on the uh, Abraham and Isaac story, right? right? But the uh, So they, that's another example where they took an idea from another story and sort of incorporated it into this one, but another story in the Bible. So it's not, you know, unrealistic in that sense. Uh, but the key thing is in in the Abraham and Isaac story, Abraham was totally gung-ho to kill Isaac, right? He was going to kill him, but God stopped him he says, no, 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 I was just kidding. You don't need to do that. You just proved your faith by the fact that you were willing to do it which is a horrible lesson, right? It's teaching someone that that you should be willing to take human life in the name of God. That's like an awful lesson to teach. And yet that's the lesson that the Bible teaches. But what the writers of this film did is they have him stay his own hand because of love and compassion, right? So he has his own mercy and he just can't do it, right? It's an interesting message to have. I mean, apart from being more Christian again, uh, it also contrasts hugely with the fact that God murdered millions of babies and compassion and mercy and and love did not stop him did not stay his hand so you have no noah here actually being more compassionate and a better person despite being the crazy fanatic that he was than god and it, i think that's contrast between that scene and the scene where they're sitting in the in the ark i think they're even eating dinner or something while all the horrible screams of the people dying outside right so <laughs> And, and, you know, it's, it's that, that contrast between, between God's lack of mercy and compassion and, and Noah actually exhibiting mercy and compassion is something they added to the story. That's, that's something completely invented. But it's, it's again, it's, it's a story that Christians should actually get behind. That's like an improvement on the story in terms of the message of Noah refraining from violence out of love and compassion. Uh, that, that message is not in, uh, the, the Genesis story.
0: Ah, uh, Brian Matson, who is a theologian somewhere. I we went to the University of Aberdeen. He did a, a an interesting uh, critique of the movie, which he dismisses as heretical, but it does a decent job of ferreting out some of these ancient non-canonical sources. He understands God to be the Gnostic demiurge, and that Noah is correct in discerning God's intent to destroy humanity. And I'm not sure I don't think uh, Aronofsky meant to go quite that far because there are these broad hints that uh, from what Methuselah and then uh, Nehemiah, I believe her name is, uh, say that, um, well, God did choose Noah to uh, safeguard the animals and all that. And and he must have known what Noah was made of, implying that God intended on somebody who would save the human race Uh, and and. And also, there is this sensitivity to the outrage of killing all of these people. I mean, is every one of them bad? Was it like the the orc army and Lord of the Rings? <laughs> uh, they they say no, because uh, at at one point, Noah's wife says to him, "I was able to forgive you." For the deaths of all these people, as if it was his fault, but but this uh, killing the the two babies, I I won't be able to forgive you for. So there's that sensitivity that hey this this is a little rough. I remember once when I was a pastor. Well, two odd things that this reminds me of years ago. I did a a sermon called "The Gospel of the Nephilim," and uh, it tied in this story with uh, the New Testament in some bizarre way. Uh, but the the other thing was. During a service and the youth choir sang this grotesque song about the flood story. And and it was it centered on God putting the rainbow in the sky. And the uh, s- song was titled Rainbow Valentine. And I shouldn't have said this, but I got up and said, boy, I, with all these people getting killed, you uh, called it Rainbow Epitaph or something. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> It's uh, like uh, the way the whole flood story is dealt with, for instance, in this terrible book, The um, the Purpose Driven Life. Uh, it's like uh, Niebuhr once said that you should take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Well, this this I think William Harwood aptly called um, the author uh, a brain amputee. Uh, This guy, uh, he takes the Bible literally, but not seriously. It just does not occur to him that uh, this entailed the, uh, the horrible deaths of all these people. And I think most people don't either, which kind of, to me, indicates that they are reading it as a myth, even though consciously they think it's history. The fact that, as a myth, you're not really supposed to worry about all th- those people—they're just the bad guys, period. Uh, that uh, they're they're not really thinking of it as some kind of Auschwitz-like horror, as it is. So it's it is kind of revealing, as Richard says, uh, how it uh, catches certain viewers and shows what they really do and don't believe. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's really interesting to me from from the standpoint of a writer is that you tend to think of the main character of a story as the character who grows and changes. And in this story, really, that's God is almost the main character of the story, right? Because he's the one who learns better. He's the one who grows as a character and changes his mind by the end.
0: I love the fact that, you know, how Noah is grudgingly willing to let the human race go on, though he's under no illusion that it'll necessarily be better. Well, that reflects Uh, God's realization in the Bible, though not in the movie, where when God puts the rainbow in the sky and makes the covenant, he says, look, uh, he implies, I kind of flew off the handle there. Uh, I I promise I will never again destroy the earth just because the thoughts and intents of the, the heart of man is only evil continuously. It's like he knows this really didn't accomplish anything. Uh, This isn't going to scrub clean human nature, but uh, he has learned not to react in such an extreme way. I I, I could be reading that in, but I think it actually suggests that. And uh, God remains silent in this movie, pretty much, except Noah has visions. He takes his being from God, but it's Noah himself who undergoes the growth that God does in the book version.
3: Yeah, indeed. Um, Although I— disagree with the god learning that particular lesson in in Genesis story. In the Genesis story, he actually says I'll never again destroy the world with water. Yeah. Right? And that's why <laughs> apocalypticists now say oh he'll use fire next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was more more of that kind of thing. But uh but yeah, <laughs> uh in the in terms of the movie, God is a very mysterious character. You don't really know what he's on about. Uh and that's the whole thing is like it's open to interpretation. It's just like a statue you're not sure what he's thinking, or, or 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 how much he's playing a role in all of this, or how certain characters' interpretations are actually reflecting God's actual will. I think it's interesting as science fiction to do that, to leave it like really uncertain, like you really don't know, and that that that's a powerful effect. And I, I think it's not so much a question as a, 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 it's a problem we can solve. It's more of a it's a little frightening that we can't solve it, and that's kind of part of the message, I think.
1: Uh huh. Well, I mean, speaking of science fiction, one thing that kind of seemed like science fiction in this movie was that Noah has this magical snake skin thing that he wraps around his forearm that I took to be the shed skin of the serpent from the Garden of Eden. Right, did, yeah. What, what did you guys make of that artifact?
3: I looked into it. I couldn't find where that came from. So I think it's something that they made up. But but what, why they made that up, where they got the idea from, maybe there's some germ in the literature, in, in the Apocrypha, that they're basing that on that I just didn't find. So I, I'm not really entirely sure what the idea of it was, although it was interesting. I did see one commentator point out that uh, that it contained some sort of wisdom. And you notice that that in the beginning, when when uh, Noah's father wraps it around his arm and is about to touch Noah and sort of confer to him whatever magical power it had, he never actually completes the touch. He's killed before that happens, and Tubal-Cain steals the serpent skin. And it's only later, at the end of the movie, when Noah finally reacquires the skin and then touches his son, that whatever it's supposed to transmit is transmitted. And this commentator was thinking maybe that had something to do with some sort of wisdom that was supposed to have been conferred that Noah lacked uh, during all the intervening part of the story. And it's only when Noah is able to wrap that skin around him that he's like freed from his drunkenness and his fanaticism and actually becomes a more wiser man. I, I it seems to be that they were doing something about that, like that's part of what. What they were doing with that, but I'm not entirely sure, and I don't know where I got where they got the idea from. I Me
0: mean, neither, though. I, I find it. I think you're right about the wisdom angle. That seems to be the case, but it's odd that it didn't originate with uh, with Tubal Cain rather than Noah. I mean that he hadn't had well that the Canite line had not had traditional possession of it since. There is this uh, fascinating story attested various places in the ancient world that Cain was uh, the offspring of Eve and Satan and uh, so he would have been the half brother of uh, of Seth and and Abel and that um, that this is why Cain was a murderer and he, given that uh, the uh, so it w- the, the snake skin would have been his father's skin strangely enough and it doesn't make as much sense to me that uh, the serpent being wise, but crafty and evil uh, would uh, that, that, that Noah's line would have inherited this thing. So I, there are pieces of that puzzle I don't yet understand. Yeah, me too.
1: Hmm. Is there anything else you guys want to say about Methuselah and Tubalcane Cain and the way that they were portrayed in the movie?
3: Well, I could, I mean, I could inform your listeners that, uh, you might wonder, like, if you're seeing this movie and there's a scene in the beginning where they're doing like the past story and Methuselah thrusts a sword into the ground and like, it, it like vaporizes like a million people, <laughs> right? And like, where on earth did that come from? Uh, that actually is another example of getting it from, uh, the, the Jewish Midrash. It's Midrash Akbir has this story where, um, uh, Methuselah wrote the, the name of God on the sword, and then uh, it, it just says he slew nine hundred thousand men in a nine hundred thousand of the wicked in a single moment, and of course it doesn't say exactly how. So they sort of interpreted that as you know thrusting mm-hmm. the sword in the ground and this sort of fire blast just annihilated a million people in one one go, um, which is a very creative way to like reimagine that idea. But that's another example of a, a midrashic Jewish legend uh, that they incorporated. So they they actually were reading the literate, the Jewish literature about the Noah story. And related stories outside the Bible. And that, so they are getting some of these ideas from there. And there might be pieces of it where I couldn't find the source. So they might even have, it would be interesting to have someone do a, a proper commentary on the text yeah. <laughs> of the movie. Uh, like, oh, this comes from here and this comes from there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and I'm sure the writers could tell you where they got certain ideas. So uh, if anyone were to do a commentary like that, uh, they would have something that biblical commentators never have. Which is access to the author.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? I talked to him this morning. (laughs) I really love this backstory that I don't think I'm just hallucinating, but uh, the business about uh, Shem and uh, Ham finding Noah passed out drunk, naked, and uh they cover him up with the uh the, the blanket and tell Japheth not to look, he's too young, etc. And then uh there's really no aftermath, whereas in Genesis nine, it's fragmentary, something's missing because they've done something to Noah so Serious that when he snaps out of it, he curses Canaan, the son of Ham, uh, and uh, says, Your progeny will all be slaves forever. What the heck? What did he do? I mean, he wasn't even in the scene until Noah's (laughs) curse. So uh, the rabbis have, even ancient rabbis, thought that something had been cut out of this. Uh, and because it was too offensive and so what it seems to be i think is that the sons that there were four sons canaan being the fourth and that he had uh castrated noah to unseat him as the patriarch and that this is a hebrew version of the greek story of the the titan brothers uh Cronus, creus uh coius and um and iapetus ganging up on uranos who was the king of the the titans castrating him and then Cronos takes over well um the the big clue is that uh, iapetus it was the titan worshipped by the Philistines. And, uh, it's the same name as Japheth, uh, hardly, uh, you know, as different as Carl from Charles. But also, Ham is most likely Baal Hamon, who, uh, was, uh, called Cronos by the Greeks. And so you have four brothers originally in both, I think. Two of them were the, explicitly the same. And this explains the, the violence against, uh, Noah. He, he was unseated, but he could get his vengeance in. And so, as, as is the case often, um, a myth has become a legend. A, a god has become a, a, an ancient hero. And I think that's what happened. And what, uh, is now why did they not have the, the violence and the curse and so on? Well, they switched it to, to Cain, who, unlike in the Bible, stowed away on the ark, which I thought was brilliant. And he assaults, he ambushes Noah and tries to kill him. But then Ham kills Uh, tubal cain to to save his father well what they did was to take two variant versions of cain who that appear in genesis and 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 switch them around because cain is also the same as canaan uh in genesis 9 and the same as tubal cain because these are different tellings of the same story cain kills his brother abel uh Tubal Cain creates the weapons of iron and bronze that Lamech uses to kill one of Tubal Cain's brothers, Jabel, like Abel. And so you have the Cain and Abel story twice and and in a sense even a third time. Uh and uh so what they've done is to uh uh switch Canaan, one uh alternate version of uh of uh Cain, the murderer, with Tubal Cain, the other one. And so uh, if they didn't intend this, it's amazing luck because all they've done is simply to include the scene, but in a different part of the story. Uh, It's just really fascinating to me. And this whole thing illustrates how uh, through the Bible and with the pseudepigraphical material, and the Midrash and the Talmud, the story, the myth grew in the telling, and this is simply the latest stage of the same trajectory of evolution, this movie. Hmm.
1: I mean, one thing that has gotten a lot of discussion is the way that race is portrayed in this movie and how all the characters are white. Is there any biblical basis for saying what ethnic group uh these characters should belong to and how does that fit in with the uh, the curse of ham thing
3: yeah it's i mean obviously middle eastern they should all be middle eastern but uh uh the the interesting this 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 is something where the i think the writers handled the pr on this badly or their own thinking was a little uh a, a slight bit racist in the sense that they were assuming that white was the default which like they're not aware of the fact that that's precisely uh, the the incorrect assumption about the world, because you know in in actual history, you know of course let's put it into the the history of the the fictional history of this mythology in Genesis. Other races don't exist yet, right? Because all the other races, the, the Asians and Blacks and all of those people, are descendants of Noah, right? Because all those races don't even exist yet. So then the question is, what races, or would there be only one race in Noah's time, or would there be multiple races, but they'd be different races than? existed later and that would be hard to portray cinematically so it would make sense to have them all one race but the thing is it's it's a christian and jewish conceit that the original people were white when we know scientifically the original people were black and that white people were developed later right so like so uh if i were doing this movie i would have really pissed off the christians by making everybody black
0: <laughs> well no, those are black you know. <laughs> Doesn't the Genesis writer assume that they're all Semites, basically? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. The yeah, names, yes. even Shem, the father of the the Semites; Ham, the father of the Hamites, which they thought uh, were included the Egyptians and all that. Because when you get to the Table of Nations, where it specifically says which son of Noah eventually gave rise to this and that, it's like they never heard of the Far East or sub-Saharan Africa, much yes. less the West uh, Western Hemisphere. So they were explaining uh, the world that knew and just naively thought that was it as to the the Cain's curse thing. I I believe that at some point there was a rabbinic uh, distortion of this story, kind of like the book of Mormon, where Cain's descendants are to be black because it's uh, somebody's using it to justify, legitimate uh, the enslaving blacks, just like um, Southern Presbyterians and others thought in the time of the civil war. But as I understand it, That part of the story is um, trying to legitimate or, or by way of a false prediction, a prediction after the fact of the uh of the Canaanites being enslaved by the Philistines, the Japhethites and the Israelites, the the Shemites and that because uh, it says that they will intermarry but that uh, Canaan's descendants or Ham's will be their slaves. Well, that's kind of what we see happening in the book of Judges with these stories about Samson who's an Israelite shacking up with Philistine women and then of course in Joshua the extermination of most of the Canaanites uh, but the enslavement of the Gibeonites, one tribe of them, so it, there it is kind of ethnic, but not uh, in the same way. It doesn't uh, involve sub-Saharan Africans. I don't think it was just typical opportunism. You make the Bible into a ventriloquist dummy.
3: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea, the connecting the the Ham's descendants with with black people, that is definitely a much much later development comes after the age of exploration, when the whole idea of the difference between white and black people was created, because that wasn't even really a thing uh, until the age of exploration thousands of years later. Uh, and so yeah, you have two different possibilities here that you could work with, you could work with the conceit of the original authors who were very ignorant and had their own sort of very uh, ratio centric view of how the world worked before them. Uh, or you could try to subvert that by combining it with what we actually know scientifically and it's interesting in the movie you notice that they play around with having the creation story in genesis kind of map onto the scientific reality of cosmology and evolution right because they even come just one like literally one film frame short of suggesting that people evolved from apes right like they like they (laughs) cut the story short like immediately the, the little backstory there right before that happens but they so but they try to make it all fit science history so they could have done that in the story of the film they could have done that with by making people everybody black for example or making everybody Mm -hmm. ambiguously racial right by hiring a bunch of people who who you can't really tell what race they are um so that would have been more interesting i think and would have been more in play with it but if they went with the all white people thing or that trying to make they what they should have said by explanation is is, well that's the conceit of the original story like Mm -hmm. they'd had no concept that and the time of noah that there would be anybody but semites Mm. Uh, like Bob says, so so that that's the way I would have explained it had I made that decision. Although I think I would have made a different decision for the film.
0: Something like you're suggesting, I think, was uh, is shown in the TV mini series of the Mahabharata, where you had all these people that were. Uh, uh, they were uh, one kind of uh, I mean, India is incredibly diverse ethnically anyway, but they're all Indians originally, supposedly, and even of the Bharata clan. So they would probably be the same ethnicity. But they figured, really, this thing is intended to show people as people in a microcosm. Uh and so they didn't have any compunction about having uh different uh obviously different ethnicities cast as the different uh Bharata clansmen and uh because this is really about human nature. And I, I like that. Or or in Thor, the fact that uh Heimdall is black. I, I love that actor, Idris El Ebla. Uh and uh I mean, wait a minute, aren't these the Viking gods? Well, yeah, sorta, but the whole idea is we are the people, these are the gods. So it's not really a problem uh showing the diversity. So they could easily have gone that route. Hmm. Yeah. How about this idea
1: that all the animals in the ark were sort of in suspended animation for the whole trip? <laughs> Answers in Genesis.
0: That's yeah, that's pretty at. clever. Might as well
1: use <laughs> it. Well, I actually check this.
3: Uh and that not the use of an herb, that's that makes sense, you know, within the context of ancient biblical mythology that you would have an herb that would do it. Uh, but the idea that the animals were put to sleep, uh, they were put to sleep by God, according to Answers in Genesis. But uh, the young earth creationists in their, their website Answers in Genesis, where they try to answer all the attacks against the Noah story. And one of them is, is how on earth could Noah have fed the animals? And how would they clean the ark of all the Horrible feces and urine, and and how would they keep the lions from eating the sheep? You know, it's like there's a lot of big problems, and so a lot of these problems can be solved by just saying, "Well, maybe God just put them all to sleep." And so that that's actually a modern fundamentalist uh, idea. So it it would be amusing to see a, a Christian bibliolater who who insists on the text being accurately portrayed in the movie object to this because it would be them objecting to their own apologetic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they don't mind adding all <laughs> kinds of crazy things as long as it'll pull the fat <laughs> that, out of the body. Uh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. You know, what I'm surprised is given the incredible number of animal species and there'd not be nearly enough room is that they don't posit that uh, God used something like Brainiac's shrink ray that he used, uh, and to get the bottle city of Candor to shrink. Oh, in fact, I think I have heard that without the Brainiac reference. That maybe he <laughs> shrank them all down.
2: He,
3: yes, right. Or the Ark is a TARDIS. Yeah, that's the other.
1: Ah. I'm surprised they don't go there, right? <laughs> Why not? See, I heard uh, Darren Aronofsky quoted as saying that he sort of Conceptualizes Noah as the first environmentalist, and some people have, have sort of said that this movie almost
0: reads like a uh, endorsement of vegetarianism or something like that. Oh, well, no, that comes right out of the Bible because That's true. Uh, they made a big deal about Tubal Cain and his buddies eating meat. Well, according to the Bible, you weren't supposed to be eating meat, which doesn't mean people didn't do it. So they're they're figuring, well, that must have been one of the big sins. It's only after the flood that God says, okay, what the heck? You you can eat meat, but it's very explicit. So Noah wouldn't, I mean, he wasn't like a Jainist or something. He's just following the command of uh, God in Eden. And, And this environmentalism yeah, I think it is really great that Noah, in effect, becomes a sort of Earth-first hyper environmentalist. <laughs> that the human race is a plague that must be destroyed if Earth is to be reborn. But he finally he says, "I can't do that. I, I've uh, I think I've got love for fellow human beings." That's a, a really interesting moral dilemma that more people involved in this ought to consider. So I thought it was insofar it is as it is modernizing, it was it made the movie uh, um genuinely meaningful, not just entertaining.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh also especially the that that let's emphasize that one point that they're this aspect of, of Noah that they're talking about actually just emerges naturally from the text itself from of, of the bible because like like bob says that that does actually say that the commandment to eat meat did not get issued until after the flood right so it actually says it that, that that noah's family ate uh you know uh, vegetation and stuff and and not were, there's no mention of them eating animals so so that actually fits the text It's the idea of eating meat came later so that the vegetarianism actually emerges from the text and also this idea of it, environmentalism also does because it was the wicked people and the nephilim who were devouring and destroying the earth that's actually in the text it says that and that's it's that's one of the commentaries against them was this destructive and environmental destructive aspect of it that's in the text and so if you're going to have noah in opposition to these people you it naturally you know the the natural inference is that he would be on the opposite side of that idea of destroying the environment and therefore be in favor of protecting the environment so that interpretation naturally emerges from the bible text so there really isn't any legitimate reason for christians to be in in outrage over that aspect of it
2: mm.
0: it pops up on the other end of the bible too in revelation when the the big uh, judgment is about to strike it says now it's time for vengeance or judgment upon the destroyers of the earth uh, so it's it's not some alien concern being read into the bible that's right
1: well so i mean it sounds like you guys are both you know very positive about the movie and feel that it's pretty true to the bible story what do you make of the christian response overall which so my impression is that it's been pretty hostile
3: (laughs) well it's it's i mean it's bibliolatry right they're they're worshiping the bible they're treating the bible as an idol that you you can't deviate from the text that whole idea is is misplaced values right even within their own worldview it's misplaced values um Yes, obviously the movie deviates from the Genesis text in many ways. It adds things, it changes things. Um, but reimagining the mythology because the mythology is I mean it's it's designed to convey a point, right? It's it's not about the literal historical fact of it. It's the the point of the story and and Bob gave the example earlier of of this idea at the time of legitimating morally legitimating slavery by telling this myth about this these descendants and and so on that of 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 Ham and and somehow that being the, their legitimation, they told the story not because it was true, but because it suited their purpose of legitimating the institution of slavery at the time. Uh, of Slavery of foreigners, specifically, because uh, there were different laws for enslaving Hebrews versus slavery enslaving foreigners. So uh, all mythology is like that. So the mythology, you design the story to convey some message, some value, some uh, way, some idea you have about how to model society or to explain the way society is run. And so the idea of changing the story to re-reflect new values and new ideas and stuff is completely in keeping with the way that you would write mythology and retell mythology and change it. And I think Christians especially should be more comfortable with that because their values have changed so much from the values that were trying to be conveyed by the original biblical authors, right? And, and there are many aspects of that in this, the idea that the watchers gained forgiveness, the idea that you could ask God for forgiveness and be saved, uh, the idea that, that compassion would Uh, compassion rather than god's command but compassion itself intrinsic in a person would lead them to not kill a baby that he thought it was god's will to kill i mean these are new values these are these are values that are actually christian values today at least let's hope that they're (laughs) widely christian Hmm. values today so it requires a rewriting of the mythology to convey the way our values have changed in the current situation that we're in so the idea of rewriting the text and, and but borrowing and ideas from the other ways the text has been rewritten by the Jews themselves for example and w- w- in doing your own creativity to it that that's you know a, a reverent treatment of mythology as mythology and the purpose of mythology.
0: I think a similar case which also got a lot of outrage was uh, the last temptation of Christ. Which took real liberties with it, as the novel, of course, by Nikos Kazantzakis had done. But, uh, I- even there, what they did was solidly rooted in the Bible. And the outrage at that movie was so ironic because uh, The Last Temptation is certainly the most orthodox Christian movie about Jesus ever made. Uh, the, like the, the idea that, uh, the liar, lord, or lunatic uh, argument that they use. Uh, is, I think, deeply flawed because it implies Jesus was not a genuine human being. If he had been, uh, then to believe that he was God, whether he was or not, would have driven him insane. Right. And that's exactly what happens in The Last Temptation. No other movie ever took that seriously. And, <laughs> and I think in a similar way, though not, not as much, the Noah story brings out unspoken issues that are inherent in this story. And it's uh, it's just that, there, sadly, a lot of people are very fragile in their beliefs. They don't want to risk rethinking anything because they've been told that if they do and they get it wrong, they're headed for hell. This is not the way to get people to, to think freely.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of other Bible movies, how do you think this compares to other Bible movies? Are there any other ones worth watching. I mean, really the only ones I've seen are Passion of the Christ and Life of Brian. Um, ah. big, I'm a big fan of Life of Brian, but, Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> Did <laughs> yeah, I that, say something? That would be my favorite
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Throw him to the ground. Yeah, that is a great, <laughs> uh, buddy, be watching, uh, 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 yeah, that is terrific. I, I think that is, uh, of course a satire on a lot of things, but it sure is, uh, hilarious, uh, in its, uh, attack on various foibles of religion some people thought that was blasphemous and anti-jesus of course it was not jesus is depicted in a very respectful way and the pythons even said they sat down with the idea of uh satirizing jesus but said well really what is there to, to to satirize here and uh the christians ought to be glad for that movie some of them are i showed it in my church years ago uh the the other one the the uh Golgotha chainsaw massacre <laughs> i've i've never seen i just somehow i've never been able to bring myself to have uh you guys what do you guys think of that one i didn't i didn't see it either
1: oh i mean it's uh yeah i mean it's it's an okay movie but i mean as uh i guess i actually i first became acquainted with both of you guys in the brian from the Brian fleming documentary the God who wasn't there mm and in that movie he 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 has a minute by minute breakdown of that movie. Uh, in terms of how many acts of violence there are in each m- minute of it, and yeah. there's, there's almost like I think there's four minutes in the movie or something that don't have an act of violence in them. It's <laughs> it's, it's a really you know like, yeah. like like you say it's a chainsaw massacre sort of movie.
0: Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now that's ironic because uh, this is another one where they said, oh, this is going to be strictly by the book, just right out of the Bible, when in fact it isn't. It's based on Anna Katharina Emmerich's The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, this uh, visionary uh, nun, I mean, hallucinating nun who uh, was bedridden and came out of her fever dreams. And she wrote this huge, long novel with a whole lot of the detail. And Gibson, who's an ultra conservative Catholic, was based in the movie on that, not the, the gospel text immediately.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious. I don't know if you know if you've seen a lot of these movies, Bob. Has there ever been a movie uh, depicting uh, the gospel in which everything is depicted, like the cursing of the fig tree and and the gathering swine, like <laughs> killing 2000 pigs? Because I would love to see a movie that actually took the text so literally that it actually shows Jesus casting demons into pigs and these two thousand pigs rushing into a lake and drowning themselves. I don't know if any movies ever portrayed a scene like that, but that would be and none of that I've
0: seen. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and then Jesus could turn to the the camera and say, "Well, I guess that's deviled ham." <laughs> <laughs> but you're right; that would be fascinating. But the, that kind of thing, nah, nah. We'd rather just have him healing people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right,
1: I have a a listener comment I want to read. So Anthony James says, I found it interesting that the Kane descendants were able to achieve industrial machinery, but that it did not occur to any of them to build a boat themselves. Uh, (laughs) He says, I'm not certain this is a plot hole either. Aronofsky seems far too deliberate and detail-oriented to simply forget about something like that. My guess is he was trying to make a statement about the application of technology. Uh, Yeah, but what do you think about this idea of two Kanes people being able to make rocket launchers, but not... boats (laughs) this
0: is sort of like the professor in gilligan's island you know the guy can make a radio out of a coconut but he can't patch the boat (laughs) Uh, uh, it may be though that he's taking uh the uh eden creation story as the basis for this where it says that it had not yet rained Uh, that uh, only a mist went up from the ground, is that supposed to tell us, is that supposed to imply that there had never been a rainstorm uh, before uh, this one? Uh, I don't know, but uh, I mean, it does say the windows of heaven were built into the thing for rain originally, but... Uh, Genesis might be implying it had never rained because there was no rainbow yet. God places his war bow in the sky to indicate the war is over, and that's the rainbow. So they may be hinting that uh, they hadn't sailed anywhere. They didn't need to and because uh, they had all these resources there, and they'd never had a flood before.
3: Yeah, they, they I guess I can't recall, but they never show an ocean or a lake or a navigable river anywhere, I don't think uh, in the movie. Yeah. I could, be, I could be wrong, but I, I like, cause there were a lot of scenes in there that where they flash through geography, but, um, but yeah, I mean that, that would be one thing. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean that would make sense if they'd never built boats before, for for example, if they'd never had reason to, um, uh, and, and, you know, the, the Jews weren't known as a seafaring race. So it it would make sense within your conceit of the mythology that they wouldn't have ships yet. But, Uh, it also does make sense that oftentimes we have all this brilliant technology, but we don't sometimes think of the obvious thing or we we do something silly. Uh, we could have gone in a different direction. Like the fact that, for example, if you go back to like middle ages and stuff like that, there's lots of things that they weren't thinking of that you'd think, why didn't you think of that? Like, why did it take the West, you know, uh, 50, you know, 2000, 10,000 or whatever years to figure out a printing press. It's like this. The most obvious way to copy uh, uh, manuscripts and 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 images and maps and stuff, no one thought of it. And, and easily the Chinese thought of it. And it it's obvious in hindsight. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a lot a of technology.
0: The yeah, ancient Greeks knew enough technology that had they put the pieces together, we could have photographs of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. But nobody thought of it.
3: Oh, you know, I remember now they do show uh, they because they show several scenes in the movie of the continents, which interestingly or yeah. are, are like pangaea they're like like really really not like 4000 year old continental arrangements but like uh what 400 million year old continental arrangements yeah. like they were showing the earth like uh, you know mil- hundreds of millions of years before our time which is interesting um and they did show oceans there uh but i i don't know if they show any seafaring going on so th- <laughs> so there were oceans in the movie but uh, i don't know if they ever like depict the idea that they ever used the sea for anything
1: well I-, I did hear darren aronofsky say that since there were no rainbows before the flood who knows mm-hmm. how t- he says that maybe the sky wasn't blue i mean who knows how the laws of physics might have been different if, if <laughs> yeah, in a sure. world with no rainbows you know?
3: yeah if you if you yeah, yeah yeah if you go into the conceit of the mythology they're like the you can't talk about anymore what's scientifically accurate or inaccurate i mean you already have you know uh, geocentric universe you're talking about you know, so, <laughs> so uh, although that's not what they show in the movie they they try to align the cosmology of the movie with uh with actual modern cosmology which so sometimes they try to be throw science in there but other times they have you know completely implausible things like a sword that can vaporize a, a million people mm. by being shoved into the ground you know it's, <laughs> it's not scientifically accurate at all but <laughs> mm.
1: All right, cool. So we're running pretty short on time here. I did want to talk about, I mean, I mentioned that I, I was first acquainted with both you guys from the documentary film, The God Who Wasn't There. Um, I don't know. Did you guys just want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, um, uh, why don't we say, Richard, why don't you talk a little bit about your your book on the historicity of Jesus that's coming out later this year?
3: Yeah. And you can say that's partly inspired by, uh, when I was interviewed for that film, I wasn't really convinced of the thesis at the time but uh since then uh, I've uh, had fans support my work and I've done a lot of research and, and I am now pretty convinced uh that Jesus didn't exist that in fact uh the the idea of a historical Jesus walking around Galilee was a later invention um came but you know a, a lifetime later or, or maybe half a lifetime or lifetimes back then the average life expectancy was 48 so uh, and that's if you survive childhood so uh people didn't live quite as long back then but um but yeah, so I've done extensive research on this uh, and have gathered together what I think is the best case by the standards that the the scholars of the field would expect, right? Like, so they, they're often cl- complaining that we don't cite enough sources or we don't cite the m- current scholarship on certain things. So what I've done is I've done that so that they can't use those excuses anymore uh, and assembled the best methodological case showing that if you look at all the evidence, it really is better explained by supposing that. Christianity originated with Jesus being an angelic figure that people only knew through revelations, and that this idea of making him a man walking around Galilee was something they did to allegorize the myth, to create a mythology to allegorize their actual soteriology, their actual theory of salvation, and so on. Uh, and and that this actually makes more sense of a lot of the odd features of the evidence that otherwise is really hard to explain on the traditional uh, theory of how the gospels developed, for example, or how Christianity originated, for example. And so that my book on the historicity of Jesus is the culmination of years of research uh, in, in trying to to build this case. But I'm not the first one to do this. There are many people who have written about it, uh, many books by by Bob, our, our other, our other uh, guest. guests have already been advocating this uh, for quite some time. It's just not been getting the attention that it should have gotten.
1: So if people are totally new to this, is the, that film, The God Who Wasn't There, is that a good place to start? Or would you recommend something else instead?
3: Well, I would only recommend *The God Who Wasn't There* for uh, maybe atheists <laughs> uh, and ex Christians who who want a a feel good um, film that kind of makes fun of religion because uh, it's really it's it's half and half. Half of it is about the Jesus issue, but the other half is about uh, the the problems with fundamentalist Christianity in general. Uh, and and it is it is it, it would, I think it would be offensive to some. Some Christians who who can't handle criticism, <laughs> uh, and and for example, um, but I I don't think anybody's done a, a like what I would consider like a really good scholarly documentary on this question yet. I've I've, I've had nibbles from different production companies who want to do one, uh, but no one's done one yet, as far
0: as I know. Bob, do you, do you have any? I, I not that I know of either. I've been interviewed for two or three of these things that have not panned out. Uh, and, uh, I, I'm sure somebody eventually will. It's, it's just waiting to be done. It, it couldn't be that difficult, uh, to, to, uh, pull such a thing off. So I'm, I'm sure somebody will. Uh, there's these, uh, insane folks in Canada are making a documentary called The Gospel According to Price, if you can believe that, hmm. which is a whole bunch of, uh, interviews with some fat guy sitting in front of a <laughs> bunch of books. And uh, it's uh, it was sup- supposed to deal a good bit with the Christ myth theory. And uh, I, over many, many hours, I did talk about that a bit, but they decided they were going to do a bit less of that than they planned. So I don't know uh, uh, how much that will deal with it, but it certainly wouldn't be adequate for this purpose. You, we really would need a much better uh extensive uh explanation of the, of the thing somebody ought to uh get that going because it, it, it would just be fascinating and could be done so well yeah i agree it's it's the iron is hot on this it's the time to do something like that mm. Hmm.
1: so so what does the gospel according to price mostly deal with then
0: uh Well, one big hunk of it uh took me by surprise. They asked me to put together a, a set of my favorite quotes on different topics. The Price Bible, they said tongue in cheek. And I didn't really know what the point was. But once I got up there, they put it in front of me and said, we want you we were in a big chapel they said we want you to sermonize uh, impromptu on the basis of these various passages and from Ingersoll, spinoza a lot of different people so i did and i think it came out pretty well uh then there, there's a part where I'm going through a scrapbook and reminiscing about my checkered fundamentalist past. And, uh, there's parts where we're talking about, uh, different Bible issues and, uh, so on. I don't remember exactly, but it's, they did quite a bit of footage. It's funny. They had it arranged so that part of it would be done in this huge, beautiful uh, cathedral in Toronto. But once we got in there, the person who had, uh, given the permission and received the the check and all that, came rushing out. She had just looked me up on the internet and said, <laughs> Oh no, no, we, we can't have this. So we can't be associated with this. So we had to go do in a hotel room instead. <laughs> it was uh it was really funny and a lot of fun. I'm not sure when it's supposed to be out, I don't think not all that far in the future. Mm. Sounds pretty awesome to me. <laughs> I got a book coming out uh, in September, supposedly, from Prometheus called Killing History, Jesus in the No Spin Zone. Uh, and uh, this, of course, is a <laughs> reputation of O'Reilly's Killing Jesus. Very good.
3: All right. Yeah, that's, that's been needed.
1: <laughs> all right, cool. So yeah, and so I definitely recommend people check out the Bible Geek podcast that Bob does. It's just one of my favorite podcasts. And um, let's see, Richard, if people want to learn more about you, uh, what, what should they check you? Should they find you on Twitter or Facebook, whatever?
3: Uh, just go to RichardCarrier.info on on the web. That's my website. You can find all the links to all my writings, my books, my blog, uh, everything I do, biography, all of that stuff is there.
1: Great. And the historicity of, on historicity of Jesus comes out when? Ex- expected in June. So let's mm. fingers crossed on that.
0: You know, you should also tell them the big news that they have officially decided to rename the uh, Bayesian probability theory the carrier probability (laughs) theory. (laughs) I doubt that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Maybe just want to explain that quickly. Oh,
3: yeah. Well, part of my project uh, for the Historicity of of Jesus was I realized that the methodology in Jesus studies is hosed, basically. And I'm not the only one to notice this. There, Many scholars in the field have pointed out that the methodologies that have been used to study Jesus are hopelessly flawed. Uh, And so I realized, well, okay, because the first thing you do in a research project like this is method. Like, okay, what's the method? And so I realized, well, I'm going to have to figure out what, it, what would be a valid method. And I realized Bayes' theorem and a, a Bayesian way of doing history is the way to do it. Uh, and so my first book, which came out two years ago, which is Proving History, Bayes' Theorem and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, which is basically showing how you can use Bayes' theorem to study all historical claims, in particular uh, historical claims about Jesus. Uh, and so, and I wrote that book for humanities majors, so you don't have to be a math expert to get it. Uh, But, uh, you know, some people still struggle with the math concepts. But nonetheless, the idea is that Bayes' theorem is a mathematical model for all correct empirical reasoning. And if once you realize that, you can use that as a tool to analyze the criteria and methodologies uh, that are used in history and other things and figure out how to extract what the probability is of of different facts based on what you assume or know about the ancient world or whatever historical period you're studying. Uh, And so I've been a big fan of this promoting Bayesian not just bayesian uh history but also bayesian epistemology that i think all of our thinking should be fundamentally bayesian fundamentally based on this bayes theorem uh and so i have a reputation for being a, a a bayes fanatic and and advocating it and talking about it in in venues all over the place and and my book is the the book for people who want to like figure out how to think like a bayesian without having to be uh ha- having, without having to figure out complex mathematical equations and stuff uh so proving history is the book for people who want to know about bayes theorem uh, uh, from from that angle.
1: Mm-hmm. And these, these flawed methods in Jesus studies you mentioned would be like the criterion of embarrassment or the criteria uh, yes. of multiple attestation yep. sort of.
3: Yeah, I have like 50 pages in my book proving history on why the criterion of embarrassment is logically fallacious and does not oh, actually yeah. work in Jesus studies at all.
1: Hmm. All right, great. Well, I'm. this stuff is so fascinating and I could talk about it all day, but we're way over time here, so we need to start <laughs> wrapping this up. But uh, I just really want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Uh, This is just absolutely fascinating stuff.
0: Oh, it's uh, it's great to be here, especially with Richard, whom I admire and appreciate. It's great to share the podium with him. Ditto.
1: And that was our panel. So thanks again to Robert M. Price and Richard Carrier for joining us as guest geeks. And, of course, big thanks again to Christopher Moore for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Ricardo for All. Ricardo writes, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was on my long list of podcasts, then my short list of podcasts, then on my go-to list. Now I find myself anxiously waiting for new episodes and catching up on old ones. David Barr-Kirtley is a great interviewer, and his SF knowledge goes way deep. I miss John Joseph Adams, but his occasional appearances are good, and the panels are always top-notch. So thank you, Ricardo, for that great review. And of course, a special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including longtime supporters Jason Lind, George Tricotte, and Spectrecraft Computing, and new supporters Obsolete Press, crowdfunder number 73, and Laura Dirks, crowdfunder number 74. Laura also just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends.